High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. You must a kiss is just a kiss. A Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our series, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. This week, we're going to begin by hearing from our special guest, reading from Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger. The sedate, renowned Hotel Creon on the Place de la Concorde was a most unlikely setting for Hollywood's first scandal. On that September morning, the valet used his passkey to enter the hotel's royal suite with a breakfast trolley. What he saw froze him in his tracks. A sable opera cape was spread out on the floor, and on it lay a nude young woman. One hand still clutched a bottle of toxic bichloride of mercury granules. The suite was registered in the name of Mrs. Jack Pickford, known to millions of adoring fans as the bright young star of the silver screen, Olive Thomas. The suicide of Olive Thomas made headlines around the world and touched off furious controversy. Olive was just 20 when she died. She had youth, beauty, wealth, fame, and love. 
not only the adulation of her fans, but the adoration of Jack Pickford. They were portrayed in the new fan magazines as the ideal couple. What could have made Olive Thomas kill herself? What the investigations of Olive's death disclosed, and the papers headlined, was a lurid private life that did not tally at all with her Hollywood image as a sweet young thing. Olive had been seen nightclubbing at the Jockey and the Maldoror with some notorious figures of the French underworld. She had sought out some of the roughest, meanest dives of Montmartre. A story began to circulate about the motivation for Olive's plunge into the Parisian Baffons. She was desperately trying to score a large quantity of heroin to supply her husband Jack, who was a hopeless addict. Failing this, she had committed suicide. Mary Pickford, just emerging from the controversy of double divorce and marriage to Doug Fairbanks, took it upon herself to issue a statement from her new domain, Pickfair, denying such, quote, sickening aspersions on her brother's character. Shortly thereafter, an investigation conducted by the United States government into the activities of a certain Captain Spaulding of the United States Army, who had been arrested for dealing in cocaine and heroin on a large scale, revealed in his little black book of steady clients the name of the erstwhile ideal American girl. You don't have to do too strenuous of a fact check to see that anger doesn't get off to a good start here. Olive was not just 20 when she died, but 25. The site of her fatal injury was the Hotel Ritz, not the Hotel Crillon. Olive's body was not discovered by a room service waiter, and the sable opera cape was probably an invention as well. Although, since there was no discovery of the body to begin with, that's not really important. What is important are Anger's suggestions that Olive Thomas's death was a deliberate suicide, and that it had something to do with the heroin addiction of her husband. Jack Pickford was the brother of the biggest female star in Hollywood, and one who was already in hype overdrive thanks to events in her own personal life, which needed careful spinning. Today, we will try to answer the following questions raised by anger. Was Olive Thomas's death an intentional suicide? And what did it have to do with Jack Pickford and his alleged drug addiction? And how was the aftermath of Thomas's death controlled by the Pickford family? And who was Captain Spaulding? And what did he have to do with Olive Thomas? Join us, won't you, for Chapter 2 of Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Olivetta Duffy came from a coal mining town in Pennsylvania, where she was born on October 20th, 1894. Her father died when she was 12, and Olive and her two younger brothers were moved into the suburban Pittsburgh home of their grandparents, so that her widowed mother could go to work in a factory. Three years later, Olive dropped out of high school and went to work as a salesgirl in the gingham section of a local department store. At 16, Olive married Bernard Krug Thomas, who gave her the last name that she would make infamous. But two years after their wedding day, 
Olive abandoned Thomas and made her way from Pittsburgh to New York. She bunked with a relative in Harlem, went to work at another department store, and then entered a beauty contest, which she promptly won. She had barely lived in Manhattan long enough to establish residency, and she had already been named the most beautiful girl in New York City. This was in 1914, and with the win, Olive got her entree into the world of artist modeling, posing for painters and illustrators who provided art for magazines and advertisements. Olive's most remarked upon feature by people who knew her were her eyes. Alternately described as violet and blue-black, they created a contrast with her translucent white skin that was said to be almost otherworldly in person. It was a shame that these eyes would never be seen in their full-color glory on screen, but they did make it into paintings that would grace magazine covers and advertisement posters. After a year of modeling, Olive approached Florence Ziegfeld and asked for a job at his Follies. Beautiful girls were a dime a dozen for Ziegfeld, but somehow Olive distinguished herself, and the impresario gave her an entry-level part in the Follies, beginning with the 1915 season. At first, she just stood around on stage, looking lovely, while bigger stars sang songs in her direction. Olive reportedly began an affair with Ziegfeld, and soon she filed for divorce from her husband. Olive was making $75 a week, or about $1,800 in today's dollars, and her powerful boss made sure that she rose up the totem pole of his show. In 1916, the Follies anticipated Playboy in presenting a Girl of the Month for every month of the year, beginning with Olive as Miss January. Later in the year, she was made a featured singer in the Midnight Frolics, the sexier show which took place on the roof of the New Amsterdam Theater during the summer months. Beauties like Olive would strut in their skimpy costumes on a glass walkway which stretched over the entirety of the male audience. Some of their costumes were made out of balloons, which guests were encouraged to pop with their lit cigars. But Olive wouldn't be long for the Follies. In 1916, she made her first film appearance in Chapter 10 of the Beatrice Fairfax serial, which filmed in Ithaca, New York. Six months later, she got her first role in a feature film, a Paramount production called A Girl Like That. This film drew the attention of Thomas Ince, the director and producer who was one-third of the Creative Brain Trust behind Culver City-based Triangle Pictures alongside D.W. Griffith and Max Sennett. Olive would appear in a total of six films in 1917, and Triangle's publicity men would plant in the fan magazines stories which suggested that Olive had a girl-next-door-style appeal. But by that time, Olive had married into Hollywood royalty. While she was still with the Follies, and apparently still involved with Ziegfeld, 
Olive met Jack Pickford. Jack was the only living male member of the Pickford family, a clan which, like a thousand others during the first two decades of the 20th century, was led by a determined single mom into the entertainment industry. Movies came after years of grueling touring in vaudeville and theater. The most talented and ambitious Pickford was Mary, who in the 19-teens was the most famous actress in film. Jack and his other sister, Lottie, worked, but they could never hope to equal the achievements of the main breadwinner in their family, and they devoted much of their energy to partying. Most reports suggest that Jack was not the heroin addict that Anger claims, but instead a prodigious drinker who was part of an entourage of some of early Hollywood's most notorious drunken playboys, which also included director Marshall Nealon and actor Lou Cody. Jack may have done drugs, but cocaine, at least, was a common party favor in the teens. There is not much evidence that Jack was the desperate addict that Hollywood Babylon makes him out to be, but there is lots of evidence that he was a fairly high-functioning drunk, at least at this point in his life. As one of his compatriots explained, quote, Jack was always pleasant and always loaded. Despite his distractions, Jack did manage to become something of a leading man. In 1917, he played Pip in Great Expectations, and he starred as Tom Sawyer in two hit Twain adaptations. He was just handsome enough to qualify as a kind of all-American type, where sister Mary was branded America's sweetheart. Jack was dubbed America's boyfriend. Off-screen, Jack earned a reputation as something more than a prolific boyfriend. Let's say he played the field. Jack won Olive's heart on the dance floor, but he secured it by lavishing her with luxury that outdid what would have been typical of even Florence Ziegfeld. Within weeks of their meeting, Jack gave Olive a platinum cigarette case, which set Pickford back the equivalent of a quarter of a million, $2018. Sometime before Olive was signed to her triangle contract, she and Jack secretly married in New Jersey. They kept the nuptials secret for a year, for a number of reasons. For one thing, Jack's powerful, gynocratic family was against his relationship with Olive. Mary would later describe Olive as having come from the quote-unquote alien world of musical comedy. Such were the subtle class differences between performers in the first decades of cinema. Mary herself had been working as an actress since making her stage debut at age seven and had not been terribly keen to move from stage to films, which was equivalent in her mind to taking a step from respectability into the gutter. But in Mary's mind, Olive came from somewhere worse than the gutter. Follies girls, who performed playful songs and dances in nearly nude costumes and were thought to have all manner of improper relationships with the men who came to see them, were perceived by actresses in legitimate theater as being one step removed from prostitutes. 
Mary felt she had the Pickford Empire to protect, and she assumed Olive was a no-talent gold digger who was interested in Jack only for his family's fame and fortune. At the very least, she felt 22-year-old Olive and Jack, who was two years younger, weren't mature enough for marriage. She called her brother and his already once divorced new wife, two children playing house. But Olive had her reasons for not wanting the marriage publicized, too. She knew what the Pickfords thought of her, and on the verge of getting a foot in the door of Hollywood, she didn't want anyone to think that she was some silly slut trading on her connection to one of the industry's first families. She had come this far on her looks, her personality, and her willingness to go after what she wanted. She wanted to try to go the rest of the way on her own. So it was not revealed that she was Mrs. Pickford until the end of 1917, by which time Olive had appeared in half a dozen movies. Of course, the Pickford name had helped Jack find work, but he also suffered from a case of frustrated masculinity as the much-domineered only male in a family full of headstrong women. This is one reason why he may have sought escape in getting drunk and high and chasing girls who could make him feel more powerful than he did as a Pickford. It could also explain why he was happy to keep his marriage covered up. Olive joined Jack in dancing and drinking the nights away, when they were together. But for a large portion of their marriage, they were mostly working on different coasts, Jack in New York and Olive in Los Angeles, and they saw each other rarely. When they were together, Olive and Jack's romance was tempestuous. They did everything over the top, including fights and including makeup. They'd buy each other lavish sports cars, which both would crash in the wee hours of the morning. Both Mr. and Mrs. Pickford were allegedly responsible for car accidents that injured pedestrian children. There's one bit of rumored scandal about Jack Pickford, which Hollywood Babylon omits, although it appears in almost every other source of published information about the actor. Most writing about Jack claims that he suffered from syphilis, with Olive Thomas's biographer claiming he contracted it in 1917, a year after his marriage to Olive. Scott Iman, in his book about Mary Pickford, claims that Jack was known around town as Mr. Syphilis. On the slim chance that this nickname was real, it gives one the impression that the citizens of 19-teens Hollywood had an incredibly dark sense of humor and no sense of discretion. Another source suggests that Florenz Ziegfeld spread the rumor that Jack had VD when Jack started wooing Marilyn Miller, the second Ziegfeld girl that Jack would lure into matrimony, alluring that would occur less than two years after Olive tragically died. It is pretty much impossible to prove whether or not someone long dead who had the power to have their medical records destroyed or changed 
really suffered from a social disease. I get the sense that if the Mr. Syphilis moniker had been such an open secret, anger would have included it in Hollywood Babylon. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. One thing that is not a matter of dispute is that in 1918, Jack volunteered for the U.S. Navy in order to avoid being drafted by his home country of Canada, but he promptly became caught up in a graft scheme to avoid having to actually serve in combat. According to one contemporaneous report, Pickford served as the middleman in the, quote, wholesale bribery of naval officers by rich slackers who obtained thereby bomb-proof jobs during the war. Pickford apparently only avoided dishonorable discharge due to the intervention of his mother. Up until this point, the Pickford family image was squeaky clean. They had been able to keep private anything that would contradict their public personas. Mary, at age 26, was still playing children, although she was about to start the secret affair that would lead her to embark on Hollywood's first superstar divorce in 1920. When Jack's involvement in a so-called slacker scandal hit the press, it was the first media event that the Pickford women had not been able to entirely control. What hell Jack must have caught at home from his mother and Mary for ruining their perfect press record. And what shame he must have felt for needing his mother to even somewhat restore his good name. Olive was also having a hard time living up to what was expected of her. She was still really young, and she bristled against the tedium and unrelenting schedule of movie stardom. Billy Bitzer, D.W. Griffith's cinematographer, was to shoot a test of Olive for a film shortly after her arrival in Hollywood. 
she persuaded him to stop at the Alexandria Hotel for a drink on the way to the test. When a girlfriend of Olive's joined them, and Olive ordered a second daytime drink, Bitzer got mad and tried to discipline the young actress. He told her she could have a second drink, or she could have the screen test, but not both. Olive chose the drink. The truth was, she had plenty of roles, and her busy schedule had made it so that she rarely saw her husband. In late 1918, with her triangle contract ending, Olive was looking for a new home. The major directors who had helped to found Triangle had left the company, and the studio was falling apart. She agreed to sign with Selznick Pictures, a new outfit launched by Myron Selznick, who was the brother of future mogul David O. Selznick and the son of pioneering film distributor Louis J. Selznick, who had recently been pushed out of his own company by Adolf Zucker, the future founder of Paramount. In 1918, 19-year-old Myron decided to avenge the Selznick name by borrowing money from his parents and starting his own studio. Olive would be Selznick's flagship, legitimizing star. And Selznick launched an expensive media blitz to promote her association with their new company. With Myron Selznick's blessing, she regularly took advances on her salary, and still her accounts were often overdrawn. Olive may have been given special attention at Selznick, but her workload was not lessened. If anything, it increased. Her Selznick contract set a target of eight Olive Thomas features per year. She would appear in eight films during 1919, the first year of the contract, but the first two were leftover Triangle productions. She'd make her Selznick debut in Upstairs and Down, a society comedy in which Olive would play what was then called a baby vamp, meaning a young woman who, out of naivete more than malice, uses her sexuality to cause problems. Most of Olive's films have been lost, and some were barely recorded by history, so it's difficult to assess what she was like as a performer, or how she was used on screen as a star for the bulk of her career. This is a shame, because some of the unavailable films on her resume are quite intriguing especially Toton the Apache, a Frank Borzaghi movie in which Olive played a dual role. It does seem to be clear that, at least for the first year and a half or so of her contract, she was extremely highly valued by Myron Selznick. The studio even allowed her to come up with a scenario for one of her last films, called Youthful Folly. Unfortunately, that picture has been lost. The most seen Olive Thomas film is The Flapper, a comedy released in May of 1920, starring Olive as a madcap schoolgirl. Written by Frances Marion, one of the top screenwriters of the first few decades of Hollywood history, The Flapper has been credited with popularizing the slang in its title as shorthand for a new species of devil-may-care woman but it doesn't exactly depict the 1920s underworld of speakeasies and dance trends. For most of the film, 
Olive's character is at a country boarding school, and the rebellion depicted is pretty much limited to precocious flirting. At one point, Olive sneaks out of school to go dancing, but she does so in a full-skirted, white Edwardian dress with big bows in front and back. Only an hour into the movie does she visit a New York cafe, clad, as if in drag, in a sleeveless shift, puffing on a cigarette to impress the older man on whom she has a crush. She's a little girl, desperate to grow up, and later, she invents a past as a quote-unquote woman of experience. The costume for this is a so-called vampire outfit, floor-length funereal gown and giant peacock-feathered hat and choker, a look that reads today as 80s goth. The title The Flapper is ironic. The film totally defangs the idea of young girls rebelling against propriety. But Olive was truly engaged in a cosmopolitan life off-screen. In late 1919, she gave a magazine reporter a tour of the New York apartment she had bought and renovated to service her home while shooting films for Selznick in Fort Lee, New Jersey. In explaining the major challenge of her marriage thus far, Olive described an understanding she and Jack had come to. At first, I just couldn't get used to the idea of living this way, she said. But I suppose one gets used to anything, given time. When we were together, we used to use up the time fighting over things. I'd say, you were out with this person or that person, and he'd come back at me in the same way, and and we'd have a lively time of it. But we're over that now. We know that we can't sit home by the fireside all the time, just because we cannot be together. This sounds like Olive is acknowledging that she and Jack had agreed to a don't-ask, don't-tell policy when it came to one another's activities while they were separated. And their separations were set to continue. While Olive's contract with Selznick would keep her on the East Coast, Jack's mother and sister were coaxing him into establishing a production company on the West Coast. If he was aware that his family was attempting to manipulate a permanent estrangement between he and Olive, Jack didn't apparently do anything about it. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. They build the trip to Paris in the late summer of 1920 as a second honeymoon. 
But the fact was, Olive had put her career ahead of her marriage, and she had never stopped working long enough to have had a first honeymoon. Now, both husband and wife endeavored to take a real break to spend a significant chunk of time together for the first time since their wedding. That this was not a paid vacation approved by her employer is proven by the fact that the Selznick Company's records show Thomas was taken off their payroll four days before she and Jack departed on their trip. There is no explanation for this in the records, so its meaning is open to interpretation. Certainly, in the coming years, as the studio system coalesced and their practices became codified, a star would be taken off payroll if they insisted on going on a vacation without a promotional element. This is why so many stars' vacations were given a promotional element. But there are other conceivable reasons why a star would be suspended from their salary, among them misbehavior, insubordination, and lackluster performance at the box office. It seems equally possible that Olive and the Selznicks had some kind of falling out and or that Myron Selznick was looking for a way to push Olive out of the studio without breaching her contract. All of the writing available about Olive suggests that, though she was well-liked, she was not a massive, money-minting star during her lifetime. Though box office numbers for films in the teens are often untrustworthy when they're even available, her movies are never mentioned as being amongst the highest grocers of her time. Olive had been told her contract was being extended just a month earlier, but a lot can happen in a month. And there is some evidence that Olive shot scenes for a film called Jenny that summer, but that film was never finished. Was Olive's performance in this film unsatisfactory? Or was she unsatisfied with it somehow? And did she thus abandon it and her responsibility to Selznick? By the time Jack and Olive set sail for Paris, the second week of August, her most recently released film was The Flapper, which had come out in May. That means it had been a good three months since she had appeared in a new film, a large amount of time for an actress whose studio contract stated that the goal was to churn out a new Olive Thomas movie every six weeks. She also had shot two movies that hadn't been released. One, Darling Mine, finally premiered while Olive was en route to Europe. But the long gap between The Flapper and Darling Mine does give the impression that something happened to throw off the release schedule. In other words, what was the chicken and what was the egg? Did Selznick suspend Olive's salary? because she was going to Paris? Or did Olive go to Paris because she knew Selznick was going to put her on suspension? We know that Olive lived her life recklessly and with abandon. Had this lifestyle begun to catch up with her before she embarked on what would tragically become her final voyage? Thank you. 
Here's what we know about what happened after Jack and Olive left for Paris. She threw him a birthday party on the boat. After they settled at the Hotel Ritz, Jack left Olive behind for a few days to travel to London with his sister's ex-husband, Owen Moore, ostensibly to buy suits. Jack had returned by September 5th, and that night, the married couple went out to a number of nightclubs. Jack would later say that they both returned to the hotel together at 3 a.m., although some observers claimed to have seen Olive and Jack partying without one another at various points in the night. They had plans to fly to London in the morning, and Jack went right to bed. But Olive couldn't sleep. She started writing a letter to her mother. Jack complained that the desk lamp she was writing by was interrupting his slumber. Olive turned off the light and went to the bathroom. In the bathroom, she swallowed bichloride of mercury. Four days later, she was dead. What exactly happened? Why did Olive swallow the contents of a bottle with a skull and crossbones printed on the label? The exact events that occurred in that hotel room almost 100 years ago are so sketchy that all reports are either deliberately vague or transparently unsure as to whether Olive swallowed tablets or a solution of the tablets dissolved in water or alcohol. The latter, it said, would have likely been mixed by Jack as a topical solution to treat his syphilis sores before bed. He should have disposed of it, but he might have been too drunk to think of doing so. It's possible that Olive either swallowed tablets of poisonous solid cleaning solution, thinking they were sleeping pills, or she washed down sleeping pills with a solution of poison and water. It's also possible that she guzzled from a bottle of cleaning fluid, but to believe that she would do that, you'd have to believe one of the following things. That French cleaning fluid came in bottles that looked like medicine, that Olive was suicidal, or that she was really, really, really drunk. Any earnest investigation into what really happened that was begun in Paris was cut off once the Pickford family started to control the narrative. So what we're left with are Jack and Mary's version of the story, which, based on the managing of her narrative that Mary Pickford did throughout her life and especially in her autobiography, are at least massaged, if not definitely spun, and the counter-narratives that have sprung up which can't be traced to witnesses or reliable sources, because there were none. Olive could not speak for herself, because by the time she had arrived at the hospital, she had lost the ability to hear and speak. She would be comatose for much of the remaining time she had left. She finally died of kidney failure on September 10th, 1920. According to Jack's first published account of the night of his wife's lethal injury, Olive went in the bathroom and after a bit, called out, My God! Jack came running and caught her in his arms, picked up the bottle she had swallowed, 
and discovered that it was a toilet cleaner. He then sent for the doctor, and in the meantime, force-fed Olive water and egg whites to try to get her to vomit all the poison up. The doctor arrived, pumped her stomach three times, and when her condition still hadn't improved, she was finally brought to the hospital. By Jack's account, she arrived five hours after the ingestion of the poison, which seems like a very long time. At the hospital, Jack claimed, he was told that Olive had swallowed bichloride of mercury in an alcoholic solution. He added, quote, All stories and rumors of wild parties and cocaine and domestic fights since we left New York are untrue. Many years later, in her highly sanitized autobiography, Mary Pickford would tell a version of Olive's last night that very closely hewed to Jack's original statement. But Mary's version put the blame on the hotel maid for placing the bottle of poisonous bichloride of mercury tablets in the bathroom next to the aspirin. Mary had no comment as to why there was a bottle of bichloride of mercury tablets to begin with in the bathroom. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Owen Moore, Jack's buddy and Mary's recent ex-husband, issued a statement on the day of Olive's death, hinting that his ex-sister-in-law had been dealing with unspecified medical problems. Olive was extremely unwell when she left America, Owen Moore said. As soon as she arrived in Paris, a doctor was called. She was prescribed a sleeping draft that she was to take at night when she was unable to sleep. However, she did not heed the doctor, and Saturday night she insisted on going out to a party. It is my belief that Olive, being extremely high-strung and nervous, took the subliminate by mistake for her sleeping draft. I do not believe she tried to commit suicide. Jack has been splendid throughout. 
Citing few, if any, named sources, American newspapers began to put forth wild tales of Olive's Parisian debauchery. An Ohio paper insisted Olive had been seen on her last night alive at, quote, clandestine places of entertainment which are operated in defiance of police regulations. In another report, titled What Olive Thomas Saw in Gay Paris Before She Killed Herself, and published by the Syracuse Herald, a breathless report was put forth of the spectacles of the Paris underworld. In these clubs, according to this report, patrons would drink cocktails containing brandy mixed with ether, while watching fights between two women billed as wild cat combat, or another show in which, quote, a Negro fights a big rat and eats it alive. Whether or not the Pickford family exerted direct pressure on the media, or if the media just began cranking out stories that they knew would please the Pickford family in general and the powerful Mary in particular, these exposés of sordid Parisian nightlife had the effect of drawing attention away from Jack Pickford and whatever potential role he had played in Olive's death. Regardless of what really happened, to claim that the underbelly of Paris was responsible for Olive's demise was to shift the blame not only off of the Pickfords, but off of Hollywood. Perhaps it's because the official narrative seemed to so blatantly bear evidence of a cover-up that the counter-narratives of Olive's death have put the blame squarely on Jack. There are two major counter-narratives. One is Anger's claim in Hollywood Babylon that Olive killed herself because she had failed to procure drugs for Jack, a failure which doesn't really square away with Anger's notation of Olive's involvement with known drug smuggler Captain Spaulding, who was a real person whose arrest was really linked to Olive's death in newspaper articles in 1920, although it seems that nothing came of the connection. If Olive was in touch with this known drug dealer, then how could she have had so much trouble finding drugs for her husband or herself that she'd poison herself because of it? The other major counter-theory, put forth by some reputable sources, albeit unfootnoted, holds that Olive killed herself because she was so upset that Jack had given her syphilis. Jack's defenders have noted that there is no paper trail that proves that he did have syphilis, only rumors, and we know how rumors can get out of hand and take on a life of their own. This is one story that it's impossible to fact-check fully, because Olive Thomas took the full truth with her to the grave. What I think probably happened is pretty mundane. In the dark, after a long night of partying, Olive Thomas reached for what she thought was a sleeping pill and accidentally took something else. Maybe it happened because Jack was careless, perhaps in contracting syphilis, and possibly in leaving his VD treatment around the hotel bathroom pre-mixed. But again, there is much less hard evidence that Jack had syphilis than there is hard evidence that hotels used bichloride of mercury as a cleaning product. Not that Jack was totally blameless. 
Even if he had done everything possible to procure treatment for her after the ingestion, before Olive's ingestion, he had apparently yelled at her about having the light on, which might have caused her to fumble for sleeping pills in the dark and poison herself instead. The only thing that seems crystal clear is that Jack and his family were so powerful and connected that they could have impeded the discovery of what really happened to Olive. They did put forth an image of Jack as a pathetic and traumatized widower. And yet, they couldn't stop a New York Times account implying that Jack had evaded questioning by Parisian authorities and hinting that Olive had recently taken on an enormous life insurance policy, leaving readers to infer that Jack wanted his wife dead. And they couldn't stop 15,000 spectators from showing up at Olive's funeral, and thus helping to enshrine Olive as Hollywood's first young beauty who was more famous dead than alive. Jack got back to his old ways pretty shortly after Olive's death, and even married another not-long-for-this-world actress, Marilyn Miller, less than two years after his first wife passed away. Miller was a recent widow herself, and the Hearst newspapers published photos of Marilyn and Jack canoodling in the cemetery where both of their deceased spouses were buried. This marriage would last five years, and Jack would enter into another short-lived experiment in matrimony before coming to his own early death. In 1932, Jack found himself once again in Paris. He fell ill, and was taken to the same hospital where Olive died. There, 12 years after his first wife's death, Jack Pickford passed away at the age of 36. The cause was acute, multiple neuritis, an issue involving the nerves in the brain, which can be caused by infections such as syphilis. There was only so much that could be done to polish Jack's reputation, but it's clear that the Pickford family took the lead in printing legends that would protect themselves. Olive's reputation and legacy be damned. Not that Olive came off as a totally unsympathetic figure, even if the newspaper reports implied her taste for sordid thrills. In the wake of her death, her movies were re-released and drew big crowds. As the first movie star to die an untimely death, her career was frozen in the amber of tragedy. As I've noted, her movies were not major hits before her death, so it's definitely possible that more of her films survive than would have if she had not died suddenly at the age of 25. But that's not exactly a fair trade-off for losing her life, and for having been robbed of any chance to tell her own story. Not only that, but the embellished and distorted narratives are the only narratives that survive. The truth faded into the ether with Olive. Next week, we will move on to what was chronologically the second major Hollywood scandal, a set of events that had as cataclysmic an impact on the film industry as anything short of the invention of the talkie. Join us then, won't you?
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Gideon Yego, who read this week's excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Nothing.